Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. And our correspondent, Allison Trowbridge. <laughs> Hi, Don. I love that we're laughing already. Well, people don't know this is like the yeah. fourth time we tried to <laughs> actually know, record that, that sentence. You the final product, but we, we messed it up again and again and again. We had to record that four times. At least. Yes. <laughs> and we may not get through this introduction. Uh-huh. I do have an opening question for us, though. Something to consider. Go. Has a brand ever lost your trust? I don't want to throw brands under the bus because every brand probably goes through a, a season of difficulty. Yeah. But has a brand ever lost your trust? And literally you said, I don't want to do business with them anymore. Yes. <laughs> the answer to that question is yes. Okay. <laughs> How deep do you want to go on this? I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I'm really well, curious. I would say, I mean, I have some very specific brands in particular, yeah. but I would say in general, one of the industries that <laughs> I have a hard time trusting is many of the companies who are in the airline industry. (laughs) (laughs) Some airlines are more trustworthy than others. We've said this before, so I I don't mind this, but I love Southwest. So Southwest I take out of that. But there are a few that I actually, I will pay $100 more to fly on a different airline. Wow. Yeah. That's not kidding I, around. There's, I remember before I had it at 75, if it was 75, and, it's and gone it up. moved up to like 80, <laughs> and then it moved up to 90. I haven't put that number on in a while. I think it's truthfully, though, if it's within $75, I will choose another airline. Wow. Because I refuse to fly with them. They just are so hard to be there's on. A, there's a specific airline yeah. that I've, I was loyal to for a very long time, and I watched them decline. Yeah. And it got to the point where they were so rude. Mm-hmm. that I thought, you know what, you must not be being treated well. I mean, I had actually had empathy. Yeah. It's like, you're treating me, a paying customer who paid hundreds of dollars yep. to be here, so poorly that you must really not want to work here either. Like, nobody yeah. actually wants to be in this situation. Yeah, the airline I'm talking about, I flew it this past week, and two of the flight attendants got in a fight with each other <laughs> in the staging area, like at amazing. the desk. They're fighting with each other in front of all the customers. And again, I was like, why am I flying them? Why? Yeah. And I used to love them, and they now know. So they've totally lost my trust. Yeah. To me, there's something interesting about the fact that we're just in a culture that doesn't trust corporations very easily. Yeah. And there's actually, after 30 years of drinking a certain soda, uh-huh. a certain <laughs> diet soda, that I don't want to name because they've done wonderful <laughs> things in the world, but I've stopped because I saw what was happening in our health epidemics. Yeah. And not just in America, globally, and especially amongst the poor. And I actually said, okay, if they're willingly peddling this sugar to poor communities around the world and diabetes is increasing and all this kind of stuff, I can no longer use this product. Which for me, after 30 years of habitual drinking the product, and I'm not that guy. I'm not like the ethical consumer guy walking around going, where was this made? I should be, but I'm not. (laughs) You should be. (laughs) I I really should be, especially Allie would know. But I just went, I can't do this anymore. I can't. They need to fix this and stop doing it. There's an interesting dynamic that's taking place, though, where these things happen and we don't trust these corporations. And so we've sort of decentralized trust in a lot of new successful companies to us. So if you think about, you know, I don't trust cab companies. Every time I'm in a cab in New York City, it smells so bad I want to throw up. (laughs) Oh, I don't trust cabs at all. I took one last night. 
I don't. You trust don't trust what all. they're charging us, yeah. but we will trust Uber or Lyft, who is decentralized trust to the people. Yeah, I won't go stay in a hotel. I think I might get a better deal if I trust somebody who's like me, who has a house that they're renting out, and that actually is an aspect on trust we haven't really given a lot of thought to. That. Yeah. Maybe part of what we need to do as a business model, all of us listening to this, is say, we just interviewed actually Joey Coleman. And Joey was part of an organization that when you sign up to be a member of this organization, another member would call you, not the organization. Yep. Another member would call you and say, here's what I think. After I paid my six grand, it was a membership to this executive kind of club thing. And after I paid my six grand, I had a little buyer's remorse. Here's what I was thinking then. They actually decentralized the building of trust to the people, yeah, to the actual clients, to the consumers, which is fascinating. And it has everything to do with your interview, with what you're talking about with Rachel Botsman. So, Ali, tell us who's Rachel Botsman and why is this so important? Why is trust important and why is the shared economy a way of building trust? So Rachel Botsman actually writes and researches trust and how technology is transforming that trust and what it means for for the way that we work and live and how we do business. She just came out with a book called Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Can Drive Us Apart. But I was so excited to do this interview because Rachel was one of my professors at Oxford. And I actually say she's kind of who I want to be when I grow up. She's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, her TED Talks get, I think she's got like 4 million views on her wow. TED Talks. She is the global thought leader on this subject matter and how technology allows these trust leaps to happen because you're really taking a leap of faith in order to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to trust you as an individual and stay in your home, even though I don't know you. And our society has continued, as you were saying, Don, to move towards this place of trusting one another oftentimes more than the traditional institution. It's fascinating, and all of us need to figure this out and incorporate it into what we're doing. Ali, I don't want to wait any longer. Let's play your conversation with Rachel Botsman. You know, I started off as an artist, and I think it had a really big influence on my work. Artists are very good at making complex things as simple as possible. And I think that sometimes people, particularly from academia, are a bit frightened that you're dumbing something down versus mm. reducing something to its absolute essence. So, Oh, that's a great way to put it. I had a teacher in college once say, if you don't know how to say it, then you don't know it. Mm. And I think sometimes we use that as an excuse of when something is so complex our inability to explain it is actually an excuse for not getting our head around it ourselves. No, I totally agree. And I think for me, the visual language is really important because if I can't draw it mm. and it can't be described in you know, a few symbols and a few boxes, the idea hasn't arrived yet or there's more to remove from the page. And it's really interesting actually starting with really big ideas, drawing them and then writing about them, which I think is the opposite way many writers work. So you've gone from looking at sharing economy and collaborative economy all the way into studying the very nature of trust. What drew you to those topics? So I first started writing about um, what they've now dubbed the sharing economy. I didn't call it that <laughs> myself. I think it's actually a very bad name for it. But anyway, I started writing about that in 2008, and it was based on this hunch, this observation that 
we were using technology to share music and photos and information and knowledge and that these behaviors would extend into other areas of our lives. Mm. And I was very lucky in that I was there early. So I met the founders of companies like Airbnb and Lyft and TaskRabbit, you know, in literally the first few months Mm. of them forming. And the challenge they all spoke about was getting people to trust this new idea and getting strangers to trust one another through the internet. And I thought this was really fascinating, both from sort of a behavioral point of view and technological point of view, but also a design point of view, that how do you get people to take a risk to do something differently? And what was really interesting is when um, the first book came out, uh, What's Mine is Yours?, it really didn't do very well and the ideas didn't really start to take off until around 2013. Hmm. And so why then, you know, now when I used to on Airbnb, people go, no, that's just a terrible idea. And now (laughs) you ask most people and they'll say, yeah, they'll actually proudly say, you know, they stayed on Airbnb or it was an Airbnb holiday. But it's a pretty strange thing conceptually to go stay in somebody else's home or in a spare room while they're there. But now that we've made that trust leap, Mm. it seems like a very common kind of assumption. Yeah, and that's I think that's what technology does is it's we've always been leaping, right? Mm. This is what we do. This is how society progresses that when we take this risk to do something new or differently, but technology accelerates that process because it can provide the information and reduce the unknown mm. just enough for us to stay in a complete stranger's home or even I think just renting out someone's home when they're not there versus staying in a hotel um, there's a risk involved. So trust is really at the heart of all of this research that you've done and the books that you've written your newest one who can you trust? Question mark. Question mark yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes how do you define trust? So the (laughs) the funniest thing is you know someone who studied trust I really, really grappled with how to define Mm. it because it's defined by people, sociologists, economists, behavioral experts in very, very different ways. It's the most disagreed sociological concept, which I find more than love, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that one of the main differences is some people see trust as sort of knowing the outcome, knowing what to expect in another person or a company. And so that's one camp. And then the other camp, which I fall into, is actually no, trust is really about vulnerability and expectations. Mm. It's really this unique tension between your fears and your hopes and your desires. And if there's nothing unknown, if there's no risk, you don't need trust. Interesting. Um, And so most things in life require some level of trust. And the more unknown, the more uncertainty, the more trust that's required. And so that's why I define trust as a confident relationship to the unknown. Hmm. And so the way to sort of visualize it is whenever you're asking someone to trust, they're in like their known place, which is where we like to be as human beings. (laughs) And then you're saying, oh, here's this new colleague or here's this new self-driving car or here's this new system, whatever it is. And that's an unknown place. And trust is the bridge. Trust is what enables you to place that faith in that unknown thing or that unknown person. So, I mean, I'm biased, but it really is a magic elixir. It's it's fundamental to every action, relationship, transaction. I mean, we couldn't function as a society without trust. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. It feels like we've 
as a society are, because of technology in large part, making these trust leaps. I think that was the term that you use. Why do you think those are happening now? And how do you think the changes around trust are shaping the business world? So I think there's a few sort of very macro trends happening that really impact businesses and organizations and our lives in different ways. So one of the biggest shifts that we see is that trust used to largely reside in institutions, mm. um, very traditional institutions that functioned in a you know big hierarchical top-down way. Yeah. So we look to experts and we look to CEOs and we look to regulators for these signals as to what to trust. Mm. And this was actually quite an easy world for brands to operate in because you could control the message, you could control what consumers thought of you. And now we're moving to this world where trust is returning in a strange way to individuals. So, you know, the stat that often flies around is like 92% of people will trust another person for a recommendation, even a complete stranger, over a traditional advertising campaign. Oh, it's so funny. But it's true, I go to Yelp. You go to Yelp or, you know, on Amazon reviews. There's so many examples of it. I think that's the first thing that's happening. And that's not saying that institutions are irrelevant. Yeah. It's just that the way, the signals that they have to put out are very different. I mean, you may have seen this even in your MBA cohort that students used to say when I was at school, they used to, I want to go to Goldman's and I want to go to McKinsey. And they would talk about the offices and the brand and... Like now people are looking for different things, right? That's not the signals that we're looking for. So that's the one macro shift. And then the other interesting thing is how technology kind of accelerates this process. This has consequences that are both good and bad because if you think about, you know, on dating apps, how you swipe right and it's very instant, right? Right. But it's not real trust. It's very, it's trust on speed. Um, (laughs) Or like on Uber, you know, it's an awful thing to say, but in the UK, the most common driver name is Mohammed because people just transfer their license to one another, right? And you just look at that profile. And I say this, it's not racist in any way, but you're like, yeah, I'll just get in the car because you want the convenience of the ride home. Yeah. And so one of the challenges is that technology makes this process very, very seamless and real trust needs friction. It Mm. needs people to slow down and actually say, hmm, is this article I'm reading or is this person I'm getting in a car with, do they really deserve my trust? Are they trustworthy? Wait, so that's an interesting way of looking at it. So real trust needs friction because I think we maybe assume that that kind of sense of instant trust is the end goal, but maybe it's not. It's not because it breaks down very quickly. Right. Um, If something goes wrong. If something goes wrong, there's no real bond there. Yeah. You know, and they say, you know, trust has two enemies, bad character and poor information. Hmm. And so often it's because we don't have the information we need to actually make a proper assessment. Yeah. And one of the things that worries me is when you have children and even consumers growing up where everything is on demand, everything is accelerated, you know, it's this when something goes wrong or they don't like something, they're going to outsource that responsibility, right? And you, you see this, right, if you yeah. on social media, like it's like – you lack the skills to actually resolve the problem because the trust was formed so quickly. Interesting. So how does friction improve trust? We can work in a couple of ways. So some designers, so the designers at Airbnb actually have a lovely phrase that they call a trust pause. Hmm. And so it's, it's just enough friction in the process 
so you really think about the decision that you're making mm. so if you think of instant booking yeah right like that's very accelerated trust yeah and then if you look at the interactions hosts and guests will have with one another and I think on average they'll exchange like five emails Oh, that, on Airbnb. On Airbnb. Yeah. That, that's really important to the process, right? Because yeah. they're setting expectations and they're asking questions. And that's such a good point, which it takes more time and effort than me booking a hotel room. But by the time I get there, I feel like I actually know and have even more trust in my host because we have a little bit of a relationship. And there's interaction, right? Yeah. And then it's also a case that if you arrive and you've asked those questions – and you're a little bit disappointed, you're probably going to take more ownership than mm. just something that was instantly booked. And then the other way that we see friction is that you can actually, I mean, you see this in relationships where you have an argument with a friend or a colleague or a difficult situation and you navigate through it. Yeah. And that friction actually gives you more confidence in yeah. that person in the long run. Yeah. And so trust, real enduring trust should actually be quite a slow process um and so one of the things I worry about is will we have the skills to cope with things when they break down because we haven't gone through those moments that really build trust yeah there's a famous story I think it was service master where they analyzed all of their customers and found that those who had had an issue Mm. and had it resolved actually had the highest rating of the company Mm. of anyone so those who had a bad experience but the company then made it right. They were the longtime customers. Yeah, it's so funny. So I sit on um, the board of the NRMA, which sounds very boring. It's like the AAA. (laughs) Um, But it's actually very fascinating because we're the people who rescue people when they break down. It's an Australian? It's the most trusted brand in Australia. What is it exactly? It's like AAA? It's like AAA, right? And it's almost 100 years old. And the reason why it fascinates me is the whole model is built on trust, right? And how cars aren't breaking down so much, right? (laughs) So if your whole brand is built on that interaction of rescuing people, and we can see that if we help people, they will then continue their membership for three to five years. So it's really weird that you kind of want them to break down. And so there's now a new CEO where he's like, hey, this business model is going to be dead with autonomous vehicles. (laughs) But how can a very trusted brand find a new source of trust? And it's such an interesting way of thinking about it because so many companies, they'll focus on the business model or a new distribution channel, but to actually make your mission that we need a new source of trust because to your point, that's the way we form a relationship with our members. It's, It's a really fascinating challenge. We'll be back with the rest of Allison's interview with Rachel Botsman in just a moment. Some of you have bought into the StoryBrand framework. You love it. You have clarified your message, and now you're looking to execute marketing material. You actually call a designer or an agency, and they have no idea what StoryBrand is about, and they are pitching you the cluttered and clever and creative and anything but clear messaging that you know isn't going to work and is actually going to cost you a lot of money. You're wondering, who can I trust to use Allie and Rachel's ideas here. Allie, we have actually outsourced trust in our guide program. Completely. That's what's so brilliant and beautiful about the model. It's really neat because we kind of came to a point where we said, look, we really teach the framework well. We help people come up with clear messages. We help people think more clearly. And they would turn around and say, can you make my website? And we made a strategic decision not to do that because can you imagine we would have 250 employees cranking out websites. And we thought, 
And JJ Man, would have no life. And JJ would have no life. Yeah. And plus, we would become a sort of conveyor belt of websites. And I just didn't see us being able to do that. We needed to figure out a system where we could outsource this to wonderful people, extremely talented, teach them the framework, and then trust them to execute it well. And we've done that. And actually, if you would like to become one of our certified freelancers, go to storybrand.com slash guide. That's storybrand.com slash guide. You have to have at least two years of marketing experience, and there's an assessment. And then you come to Nashville, and we do a four-day immersive training, and then we create a beautiful community where we keep teaching you more and more about how to get a great return for your clients. And if you're saying, man, I need to redo all my marketing material, as I said earlier, go to clarifyyourmessage.com and shop our list of certified guides. They are awesome. These people are getting enormous returns for their clients. They are immersed in the story brand framework. They know how to create a clear message and a beautiful new brand for you. Just go to clarifyyourmessage.com. So if you want to become a story brand guide, you have the marketing experience to do it, go to storybrand.com slash guide. And if you're looking for a guide, somebody to create your marketing material, you can shop those guides at clarifyyourmessage.com. That's clarifyyourmessage.com. Okay, let's get back to Allison's interview with Rachel Botsman. So talk to me about some of these kind of myths around trust, especially as they relate to the business leaders listening to the podcast and they're thinking about trust in their businesses and and what that means for their relationship with their customers. So I guess if I had to pick my top two, the first is this notion, like a lot of businesses will say we need more trust. Mm. We need to build more trust and that's our end goal. And it sounds quite theoretical, but you actually don't want more trust. You want more be more trustworthy, right? And oh, so if you think okay. about it, like, I don't want more trust in Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't want more trust in the CEO of VW, right? right I want right, right. to place my trust intelligently in the people that deserve it. Mm. And so I find it's much more helpful for companies to think about the science of being trustworthy and Mm. the great thing is we know how this works Mm. we know that people look for these four traits so they look for competence Mm -hmm. so does this person or a company have the skills and the knowledge and the experience to do what they say they're going to do yeah reliability which I think is really interesting which relates to time and responsiveness but also consistency Hmm. so if you think of like some of the experiences I've had where you know the first interaction is so great yeah and then it's like crickets right like you're <laughs> sounds like, like dating yeah it's a bit like dating so now all these situations are coming back to me where like, that financial planner was fantastic where are they right yeah, yeah. More, so many so reliability and they're on the ability side of the equation they're sort of like the how traits okay and then there's the why traits which mm. some people would attach to purpose and these are really your character traits which come down to benevolence okay so How much do you care? Do you show empathy for what I really need? And then the last one, which is the hardest and the holy grail, is integrity. Yeah. Oh, that's everything. I made that that one of my company values, actually, because I'm like, it's – I actually got that from my dad growing up. My family has a small business, and that was the word that always came up in our home of what does integrity look like day in and day out. It's got to be authentic as well. Like, yeah. I think it's the one that you smell. Like, you're like, that, I don't really <laughs> right. believe you're right, trying right. to demonstrate <laughs> your integrity. And, and so much of it comes down to, like, whether your intentions are aligned. 
right? Mm. So if I think about where something's really broken down in my life, it's not necessarily because that person's a bad person. Mm. So like employees that I've hired, it's because they had very different intentions coming into that role. Mm. And so it's a long-winded way of saying companies, when you start to really understand these traits, will sometimes wobble around one and they'll be really strong on another. And that becomes really helpful when you're thinking about the makeup of your team, when you're thinking about how to design the customer experience. And I think, to your point, if you get the integrity piece right, everything follows because Mm. people know what a right decision is. They know Mm. what a good decision is. Yeah, it's a framework you can constantly analyze everything against. Mm. And behave and see things through. Yeah, okay, so becoming more trustworthy, not just building trust. More trust shouldn't be the goal. It should be more trustworthy. Being more trustworthy. And that's competence and reliability for the how. Yes. And the why, benevolence and integrity. Okay, I'm Um, taking this with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Still trying to get my marks. (laughs) You'd be doing well on class participation. (laughs) We used Uh, to, at Oxford, they do class participation where somebody sits in the class and and actually grades you on how well you're doing, like talking and responding to the professor. So I'm here here with my hand up right now. (laughs) Okay, Um, what's myth number two? uh, So number two, actually, I'm going to pick three very quickly. Number two is this very generalized way we talk about trust. Mm. So if I said to you, who do you trust the most, Facebook, Uber, or Amazon? Ooh, ooh. At the moment, Amazon, only because the deliveries come when they say they will. Right. So it's a really bad question, right? Because you're answering that question based on that you have confidence that when you order something, it arrives. But if I said do you trust Amazon to pay their taxes or do you trust (laughs) Amazon treats its employees well? Right, Um, right. Or so who do you trust the least, Harvey Weinstein or Donald Trump? (laughs) These are hard questions. (laughs) Not that hard. I know. (laughs) Again, you don't have to answer, but it's a bad question because – you can trump – you can trump. (laughs) That's a Freudian slip. (laughs) You can trust that Trump will tweet at 4 a.m., I do trust that. You trust, I trust that, that right? implicitly. I but do. you don't trust necessarily, I don't know. That that's not going to start a nuclear war. That it's not going to start a nuclear <laughs> war, exactly. So this trust is really contextual. Mm. Um, so this very general way we talk mm. about trust is also yeah. not helpful. Yeah. Um, the third, which is, I think, really interesting. So when organizations, a lot of them say, and we've seen this with the Facebook Cambridge Analytica yeah. scandal, the response, the way we're going to fix trust is we're going to be more transparent. Hmm. I'm not saying that disclosure and showing people how things work and understanding the inner workings of systems is a bad thing. It's not. But if you need things to be transparent, you've given up on trust. Hmm. They're not Hmm. bedfellows, right? So I once worked on a team where everyone had to know everything, right? Everyone was CC'd. And you'd say... That team was highly transparent, but it yeah. was a very low trust Right, team. because the transparency is because the trust isn't there. It's because the trust isn't there. Or like a friend of mine, she says, I have a really trusting marriage. But she checks his emails and messages. Oh God, Do you know terrible. what I mean? Like she has a transparent <laughs> yeah. marriage, but it's not. So this idea that transparency and trust are bedfellows, I think mm. is another really big myth that has taken hold like it's very much a part of the business lexicon so as a small business owner thinking through those things and also just as they're navigating kind of a new landscape of business Mm. how do you think 
like over the next 10 years that those concepts of trust and technology are going to continue to develop? Because a lot has changed in a decade Mm. leading up to now. Where do you think we're going? Can I just give you one really nice example of this from a small business? Um, So there's this wonderful brand called Thank You. I don't think it's in... Um, I actually do know them. You do know them, yeah, right? So, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful company. Beautiful company. And they broke into a category where everyone said it was impossible, yeah. which is like... Like soap. soap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, like bath and products. Soap, yeah, right? yeah. Like the yeah. most crowded category they broke yeah. into. And it was it's a social enterprise and buy one, give one away. And the packaging's lovely. And they lowered the brand tax, right? So yeah. they were like, we're going to sell these sustainable products yeah. at a very reasonable price. And it's the fastest growing brand in Woolworths and Coles across Australia and New Zealand. It's wow. phenomenal. So the founder, he told me this story of how he wanted to make what they did more transparent. Hmm. And he got fixated on this. So they spent a fortune, a relative fortune, on putting these QR codes on where you could track, scan the product and track where your donation went. Mm. And so you could see its impact and no one used it. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And and he was, like, destroyed, right? Right. And then we were in this conversation and I said to him, maybe you don't need it because people trust you. Oh, wow. And he was like, I never thought of that. I mean, maybe people don't care. Yeah. But in that situation, I would just say, well, if you told me that this is building schools, I actually believe you. I don't, I may not need to see it. Yeah. And it's the wrong thing for his brand to do because it's actually, which I thought was a really interesting example of them making this massive investment on transparency, Yeah, which was actually the long signal for the brand in the long term. Oh, I love that. Okay, yeah. so so looking back to your ahead, question. back to the <laughs> back to the question. Where um, where are we going? So I think one of the next big frontiers. Well, we're already having to navigate it. The trust in technology has jumped, has taken a leap without us really realizing it. From the technology doing something to making decisions for us. Mm. So we trust that these microphones are recording, right? And that's based on... I looked at the recorder to make sure (laughs) that it was recorded. But that's based on that it's competent and reliable, right? It's on its its doing traits. Yeah. When we don't have it in our house anymore, but when we had Alexa in our house Mm -hmm. and it started to make decisions for my children. um, Like what? Like what? They would ask it, like, what should I do today? <laughs> and like, what should I wear? My daughter kept asking it what, and it had a camera, right? And it now has this style check algorithm. So it was rating her outfits. And what? I know. And no she got way. there very, very quickly, which was very frightening to me because wow. what amazed me was she was three and a half at the time, was how quickly she outsourced her trust to this algorithm. Wow. And that there's no way she could understand that the corporate master, you know, behind <laughs> this very helpful system was Amazon. Huh. And she couldn't understand the commercial intentions. Yeah. And so when you move into a world where technology is making decisions for us, the integrity piece becomes, of the algorithm becomes, you have to trust yeah. the intentions of the machine. The benevolence. Yeah. And how much it cares and whether it has your best interests at heart. Yeah. And, you know, it's so hard to get right in another human being. How huh. do you get it right when it's invisible? Right. So that I think is very, very challenging. Yeah. So what do we do with that? I mean, especially around 
there's so many conversations around self-driving cars, which I actually get really excited about because I love the idea of being, I live in LA. And so with like an hour in traffic, if I could be on email that whole time, it'd be a I'm thrilled. a terrible driver. So really? I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> you know, insane. I had another totally. accident last week. And oh, no. <laughs> and I'm sorry. My husband's like, it would be cheaper if you just got taxis everywhere <laughs> than to insure you. <laughs> That's really interesting, right? Because there's some human decisions that are better to automate. Mm. And then there's other things where the technology should really amplify human decision-making, mm. not take over, not replace it. I don't know if we're getting that balance right. That's my fear. Mm. What questions should we be asking as consumers or as business leaders? Well, as business leaders, I think it's what does the technology do that's better than a human? So I think a lot of that's around efficiency, right? Yeah. And then what parts of my business how does it enhance the ability of my employees to be more human? Mm. Right? So how does it remove some of the drudgery so they can actually do more of that face-to-face -face interaction yeah. and improve what those interactions look like? And then I think the third piece is, it sounds very nice to say, but I genuinely believe that the businesses that are going to win are the ones that feel the most human. Mm. And you know, Lemonade is a really interesting example of that, yeah. the insurance company, right? Yeah. They're using technology in all kinds of interesting ways, but you feel like it's to serve the person Yeah. versus telcos, terrible, right? Like you feel like the technology is serving the system, yeah. not the person. And so a lot of distrust in institutions is just because they've got too big, hmm. too yeah. removed. right? And so it's how do you use this technology in a way they're actually puts the intimacy it's it's more than personalization it's mm. it's putting that relationship back into the business it's a really good word the companies that are going to win are the ones that feel the most human mm. we're not talking about ai robots we're talking about actual relational connection and they may have ai robots yeah. like it's not it's not like they will ban technology <laughs> or but they're just using it in a you know i always think if artificial intelligence like from putting my brand hat on right yeah this such a terrible name. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? I it actually wanna, is horrible. I, what do you want to consume that's artificial? Nothing. Uh, nothing. <laughs> I literally try and cut artificial out of my diet. Artificial food? Yeah. Toothpaste? No. Right, so right. if it was about amplified, enhanced, augmented, like any of these words. Yeah. Enhanced which, intelligence. I'm all in. <laughs> you're all in, right? So if it was really about amplifying and unlocking your capabilities as mm. a human, We'd be designing and, and thinking differently about mm, it. I love that. Okay, new goal. we got to rebrand AI. <laughs> <laughs> I give that one to you. <laughs> okay, done, done. Well, Rachel, this has been so fascinating. Thank you just for the work you do. And I love your book. Again, Who Can You Trust? with a question mark just came out. And just thank you so much for being on the show. I just really appreciate the way that you're helping us as a society think about these big questions. Oh, thank you. It's really good to talk to you. Allie, that was terrific. It was. And when I say trust me, this is one of the best interviews. 
You can believe it. Yeah, now, you. <laughs> you have built trust. Now that you, you have built trust, Allie. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, talk about building trust. Next week's interview has a similar theme. I talked about him earlier in the yeah. introduction, this guy, Joey Coleman. And Joey wrote a book called Never Lose a Customer Again. And it's almost like part one and part two of building trust. So Joey talks about the importance of building trust and keeping a relationship going after somebody buys. Yeah. And so he says, when somebody buys something from you, they have a little bit of buyer's remorse. And you think it's over, like they bought something from you, so our story with this person is over. You actually need to step into their story again, play the guide, as we would say, story brand, and affirm their purchase. And he shows in case study after case study how much revenue goes up when a company does this. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. Is that something that you guys use? We're actually openly having a conversation. There's actually somebody we're thinking of hiring that that's all they would do. So it would be a full-time person at StoryBrand who would call you if you bought the online course or whatever and say, hey, what were your goals? What were you trying to accomplish? Is there anything else we can get you? And then call you back a month later and say, did you accomplish your goals? And did the product actually work for you? And he would say that's directly related to customer satisfaction and all these other metrics that are predictors of growth. Yeah, I wondered how this conversation would go, whether it would be able to translate, and it did perfectly. Here's a little tease of my conversation with Joey Coleman. In the typical business, the likelihood of selling to a new customer averages somewhere between 5 and 20 percent. Hmm. Maybe higher, maybe lower, but that's the average across all industries. 5 to 20 percent of cold prospects will decide to become a customer. If you try to sell that same product or service to an existing customer, the number skyrockets to a 60 to 70 percent conversion. Wow. So I look at that and I say, folks, salespeople, it's easier to sell to your existing customers and you have a higher conversion rate and the profit margins are higher. I just don't understand why we're not paying attention to that. So that's next week. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, do so today so you don't miss any of those conversations. Also, another book, Building a Story Brand. If you haven't bought it yet, it's doing super well. I'm super excited. People are, <laughs> people are buying this book eight months later. But if you want to know about the framework and you, you're looking for an entry to understand the story brand framework and how you can clarify your message, Building a Story Brand is available wherever you buy books, certainly on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Guys, another fantastic episode. So fun. Allie, thanks for being with us. Oh, I loved it. Okay, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.